else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your blessings. We thank you for the opportunity to meet with you. We ask now that as I speak on your behalf, that I will be hidden, your voice will be heard, your message will be received, and we will all leave this place changed for your kingdom. Amen. Over the last few weeks, we have revisited some of the great allegories of the New Testament, New Testament as told by one of the greatest storytellers of all time. And I hope, like me, you have fallen in love with his amazing ability to engage our attention and change our hearts. Many of us can read a story well. Others of us can write a great story, but very few, if any, are able to author a story, grasping an audience by idea with a moment's inspiration and changing a life for eternity. The genius of these parables told thousands of years ago is the timelessness that they have maintained throughout the ages and relevance they have even today. The spiritual fable in Luke 18, however simple, is just another of those stories of eternal value that explores the variety of importantly complicated tensions that exist in the Christian life. I think this particular story deserves repetition. So I pray your indulgence while I read it again. This time I will be reading from the MAV, the modern Advent Hope version. It was March 7, 2020, and while the coronavirus was becoming of increasing concern, it was still a few days before the mayor declared that the city pause and its residents shelter in place. It was the last Sabbath that Advent Hope would meet in person before assuming a virtual model of worship. So on that Sabbath, the church doors were open and the lovely Alex and Annette Espania greeted the members at the door and warmly invited them into the church where Nick and the praise team prepared the church for the usual planned services with song. Among the attendees was Jesus, elder and visitor. Now, it was no surprise that Jesus showed up to worship at Advent Hope that Sabbath, because he always did. Every Sabbath, 
at the same time, in the same neat, clean, nondescript charcoal gray suit and black pebble grain floor shine wingtips. His signature navy tie was missing that day, but his shirt was still buttoned to the neck. Similarly, everyone knew the elder. He was admired and respected by all. He taught Sabbath school and volunteered on the potluck team and several small groups. His generosity with time was only bettered by his well-publicized monetary contributions and his exemplary tithing, which included a tenth of what he earned, bought, and received. He chose a spiritual vocabulary which conspicuously spoke to the exemplary hours he committed each day to biblical scholarship and study. There was no question that his benevolence suggested that he was a man after God's own heart. The visitor was also known. He worked for the IRS, was filthy rich and best known for having repeatedly survived accusation of grand larceny, embezzlement, and several other usurious charges. He was dashingly handsome and an unapologetic lecturer who was confirmed to have broken many a heart, wrecked many a home, having laid with many a man's woman, some being in this very church. He had never visited Advent Hope before, and his arrival was puzzlingly scandalous. That Sabbath, Pastor Todd decided to preach a stirring homily, after which he asked the congregation to split into groups to pray. Jesus was standing in his usual spot where he liked to usher people to the visitor who noticed. Happenstance would have that the first elder and the felon were seated within a few persons of each other. After Todd's invitation, a group quickly gathered around the elder who wasted no time in leading the group in prayer. The members loved the elder. He was kind, patient to speak, and a good man. The elder summarized a few salient theological themes from the sermon, then his hands clasped tightly and chin raised proudly, he began. Lord, I thank you that I was able to fast twice again this week. I visited several shut-ins and tithed not only on what I have earned, but what I bought and received. I was disciplined to resist the advances of the several women whose designs were to seduce me. Lord, I am sure that I am this IRA agent who sleeps around and brings shame to your holy house of worship. The visitor was alone. No one was comfortable to be seen with him, let alone pray with someone of such unpopular repute. After the echo of the elder's prayer had ended, a noticeable silence was broken by a nearby inaudible whisper. It was coming from the lips of the visitor, whose head was bowed shamefully and clenched fists beat the the size of his thighs repentantly 
Lord, please be kind to me for I have done bad things. And Jesus was watching and listening all along. Ends and ends in a vacuum. One of the biggest mistakes a trial lawyer makes when cross-examining cross a witness is beginning his or her questions at the time of the crime as if the day began and ended with the incident in question, as if no events preceded the matter, the murder. Granted, everyone is eager to cut to the chase, to get to the juicy and the sexy parts of the crime. You know, the moments when the perpetrator plunges the knife into the neck of the victim or discharges her gun callously into the chest of the deceased. But the act alone doesn't tell us the complete story. Keep with me, Advent Hope. I'm, I'm speaking to us. The why of any story is dependent on the who. Do you know that in any criminal trial, motivation, the why in every account is never an element that needs to be proven? Why someone stole, why someone robbed or injured another is a relevant element need the elements that a fact the jury demands to know every time. It is for this important reason, in, in all his stories for that matter, but particularly in this story, Jesus identified who those two men were. He quite easily could have begun with two men entered the church and both said a prayer, then went on to describe them as it appears in the text. But knowing that one was a Pharisee and the other a tax collector gives necessary context that remains just as important today as it was then. Knowing that one was a Pharisee and the other a tax collector gives us a window into what their lives might have looked like before entering the temple and accordingly the all important element of motive. The lesson in this story is not as much about the nature or quality of the prayers as it is the condition of the hearts of the persons who prayed and why. Knowing who they were gives us that window into what their lives might have looked like before entering the temple and accordingly, again, the all-important element of motive. Why? The Pharisees were considered learned men who were generally knowledgeable and respected by the religious commitment. They were biblical students, revered for their strict adherence to the laws in the holy writings. There was no surprise to the listeners of this story that a Pharisee had entered the temple to pray as he did. This is what Pharisees did. But what gripped the hearer's attention was the other temple visitor, the IRS agent. You see, during the time when this story was told, the Jews were being occupied and oppressed by the Romans and the tax collectors were oftentimes Jews who notwithstanding the treatment, the mistreatment by the Roman government, contracted with them to collect the oppressive taxes from their very own people. 
This agreement allowed for them to keep anything they collected beyond the amount owed by law, thus creating an incredible incentive to collect excessively more, which gave them the despised reputation of being wealthy crooks and thieves and sellouts. Tax collectors didn't enter temples, let alone to pray. So naturally, when Jesus mentioned the IRS entering the story became much more interesting. One, a righteous person, the other, an unquestionable sinner, at least by earthly appearances. Now, equally important is that the elder is not a bad man. In fact, he was doing everything an Advent hoper is expected to do. Tithe, engage in pastoral respect the vows of marriage, including others' marriages, and engage in acts of self-denial, selfless giving, prayer, and worship. The quintessential church member. All being said, like me, I suspect that many, if not all of you, when reading this story, desperately, though reluctantly, search to identify with the collector, the ultra, the bad. Not because of how the story begins or what we know about them each, but how it ends. I'm embarrassed to say that I am more like the Pharisee, the elder, than I am the tax collector, not because I engage in felonious behavior, but because I have admittedly caught myself avoiding, ignoring, and even looking down at times could be considered an innocuous, acceptable, an innocuous, acceptable innocence that may not be obviously offensive, but certainly unchristlike. And while my prayers may not be pointedly boastful and obviously self-congratulatory, they are no less empty of God and filled with a sense of Christian privilege. That privilege that breeds a sense of superiority that is just as unacceptable as that of the Pharisee, but not as offensive because it isn't broadcasted in prideful prayer, but rather in the private selectivity of those I choose to minister. By jacket, slung it over his knee and loosened the top button of his shirt. He appeared unrelaxed and troubled by what he had seen and heard. He pulled his thick locks behind his neck, then draped his arms atop the shoulders of the pew. A film of sweat had now formed on his dark forehead. Looking straight ahead, he exclaimed to the observers close by, I tell you that this man, pointing to the IRS agent, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humble. And those who humble themselves will be. I chose verse 14 of the NIV because of the word justify. It's a beautiful word that is synonymous with the most important gift God has given humankind. Legally, justification provides an acceptable explanation for why an otherwise criminal act was committed 
the defendant provides an adequate reason for the offense she or he is accused of, and though having committed a criminal act, having committed a criminal act, the court accepts the excuse and finds the accused not innocent, but not guilty. Not innocent, but not guilty. In Christian theology, justification is God's righteous act of removing the guilt and penalty of sin, while at the same time declaring the ungodly to be righteous through faith in Christ's atoning sacrifice. Declaring the ungodly to be righteous. We are not good because we know and acknowledge Christ. We become good only because of and through Christ, who chooses to see us not as we are, proud, conceited, self-absorbed sinners, but who we can become. And anything that we are that is deserving of recognition is a product of his gift of grace. How reckless and extraordinary is a love that sees who we can become and not who we are. An unconditional love that is willing to excuse our sinfulness, acquit us of our guilt, because we are humble enough to admit our wrong and recognize our need for change. Jesus told this story as a cautionary tale of sorts, tailored for us who are confident in our own righteousness and comfortable with where we are in our Christian journey. We pride ourselves in being unlike others, distinguishing our sins and informing our righteousness with what we know and do in the name of Jesus. Not necessarily in the hearing of others, but in our hearts we cultivate a sense of pride around our accomplishments and who we think we are. There is nothing in the story to suggest that the Pharisee was not a good person. Paying tithe and fasting have its certain value in a Christian's life. But what was measured in acts of charity and generosity, it lacked in sincerity and humility. When our acts give rise to a sense of Christian privilege, our prayers, no matter how loud and eloquent, echo reach the ears should be a particular concern to those of us who call ourselves Christian. I have since asked myself, how many prayers have I have left my lips? But were so heavy with self that they never prayed the Pharisee's prayer and not the sinner's cry. Advent Hope, we are nothing without the reckless love of God that clothes our unworthiness with his righteousness. But oh, too often we, we forget that it is our unworthiness, our unworthiness that qualifies us for his forgiveness. And that was the simple but important difference between the two men and the two prayers. One prayed about himself the other one reaffirmed his unworthiness one was motivated by his greatness and the other was inspired to be forgiven 
One was satisfied with who he was and the other desperately wanted to be changed. One saw a sinner while God saw a saint. That was the difference. Last week, I was moved by the beautiful message Kendra so impressively inspired us with. Now, in addition to pondering how gender racist it would be for anyone to listen to someone as spiritually polished and effective a messenger as she is, then conclude that only because God designed her to be woman, she's ineligible for ordination. I've thought about her sermon all week and her reminding us of the importance in allowing God to interfere in our lives. Allowing God to interfere in our lives. I submit to you that it takes an uncomfortable, unfamiliar, and intentional humility to permit Jesus to interfere in our lives. It means allowing him to disrupt, derail, uproot, reconstruct, reconstitute our plans and ambitions, some of which we have worked so hard or waited for with excruciating patience. This parable beg, examine our, on our eyes, and like the IRS agent, pray, pray, Lord, change me. Change me into the person I am outside of my home when strangers are watching and prayer and strangers are listening. Change me at work into the person I am at church. And as you do for me, Lord, change the perception, change the perception and the prescription of my lens so that like you, I can see others, not they are, but who they can become through race. There's black, white, brown, rich, poor, gay, straight, democratic, and yes, even Republican. My advent hope family. And I give all credit to Todd for the bold recognition that before Corona forced us into our houses and hid our smiles and muzzled our praises with masks, before Derek Chauvin murdered George Floyd and ignited a national righteous indignation for change, we as a church made a commitment to take a knee, not in violence, but in prayerful humility, recognizing that we must, we must change. Like the Pharisee who thought himself superior to the tax collector because of how he looked, loved, lived, and worshipped, we are called to reject this model of Christianity as God did his prayer. The truth is that no agency, none, including our church, Advent hope can claim legitimacy or credibility at this moment in American history without engaging for change toward an anti-Christ racist model, an anti-racist model of Christianity as taught in this parable. A change toward an anti-racist model of Christianity. 
it is not enough to rely on progress as a measurement of success while the goal of equality is still unachieved. Advent Hope, this is our moment. This is our opportunity to change the world. But first, the change must begin with us. Amen.